In the past few weeks, tens of thousands of demonstrators have been advocating for social justice all over the country. So who are they? Why are they acting this way? It turns out that many came of age during the Great Recession of 2008. Many others are coming of age now in the latest recession caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, I'm Oren Alney, and this is the UCLA Anderson podcast, How the World Works. My guest today is Professor Paola Giuliano. She teaches economics at UCLA Anderson, and she does research on culture and political economy. Professor, welcome. Good to have you. Hi, Warren. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you've written a paper about growing up in a recession. What is the connection to the current events on the streets of America? I've always been interested in my research in understanding what's uh, determined support for uh, redistributive policies. So these are the type of policies whose goal is uh, to help the less fortunate and also help mitigate inequality in uh, society. And in the paper that you mentioned, uh, Growing Up in a Recession, we try to understand how economic crises affect preferences for redistributions and political economy. And as you can imagine, economic crises have a profound effect on how people form economic beliefs. And what we do find uh, in our study, so this is a joint work with uh, Antonio Spilimbergo, is that economic crises have a strong effect for people who experience a recession in what social psychologists call the impressionable years. So this is the period between 18 and 25, and this is the period in which young adults form their economic and political beliefs. So what we do find in our study is that young adults who experience a recession during the impressionable years period are more likely to believe that success in life depends more on luck rather than effort. They tend to support redistribution, and as a result, they tend to vote more for left-leaning candidates. So if I had to speculate from my research, those people that today are protesting on the street were likely going to be between 18 and 25, are going to be the one who are, whose economic beliefs are going to be affected the most. And as a result, they will support in the future uh, redistribution. Can you predict the election as a result of this? I wish I could. <laughs> but uh, this is what's our uh, result uh, study, that these people should vote in principle for uh, Biden. There could be uh, a different effect. So what we also find in our paper is that people uh, lose also trust in the government. So it could also be that they decide not to go to vote. And so we don't know. But if I had to speculate on the data that we use, so we use data from 1972 to 2010 when we wrote the paper, yes, these people should be more likely to vote for Biden. It seems sort of contradictory. On the one hand, I gather that uh, you're saying they will support the redistribution of wealth and income, but at the same time, they're losing trust uh, in the government. That's contradictory. It could be contradictory, but I think our interpretation was that they might lose 
trust in the government because they think it's the fault of the government for how things are going. But at the same time, they want the government to intervene. So they want the government to help the poor uh, and they want to have more welfare policies, for example. So it seems in contradictions, but I don't think it is. Well, nothing is ever cut and dried in, in this kind of a uh, situation. Um, are you saying, and have you advocated elsewhere, or have you found elsewhere, let me put it that way, that we are wired by our own ancestral histories to do certain things under certain conditions? As a part of my research, I looked at uh, what is called uh, cultural transmissions and cultural persistence. So I've written several papers in which uh, I look, for example, at preferences for labor force participations of women in the U.S. And I do find that labor force participations of women for second-generation immigrants tend to mimic what is going on in the country of origin. And what I do find, or the way I interpret it, is that there is a strong cultural transmission. So we form our beliefs when we are children, and then beliefs tend to be transmitted from parent to children, and then they tend to be persistent for a very long period of time. This doesn't mean that they do not change, but it means that they can be changing very, very slowly. So mothers transmit things to their children. How far back does this go? How many generations back do you look uh, in order to uh, find what you refer to as the seeds of ideology? So in the seeds of ideology, we are interested in understanding preferences for redistributions in the U.S. And what we try to understand is whether the historical presence of immigrants in the U.S., has an effect on preferences for redistributions of Americans today. We are interested in one specific period of American history, which is the age of mass migrations. It was a period between 1850 and 1920 where Europeans from many countries arrived in the U.S. So initially there were Irish and Germans, and there were many Southern Europeans then from Scandinavian countries. And what we do find is that if you look at counties where historically there were a lot of migrants from the age of mass migrations, people in the U.S. who live in those countries, they tend to have stronger preferences for redistribution. They also tend to vote more uh, for a left-leaning candidate. And the result was surprising for a variety of reasons. First of all, the literature in economics, preferences for redistribution should be negatively affected from the presence of people different than us. Uh, so, for example, if there are people of a different race or a different country of origin or who speak a different language, of course, this is true only in average. And the idea is that people do not like to redistribute if people who are going to benefit from the redistributions are different from them. But we do find the opposite result, and this was interesting, and then we try to understand why this could be the case. And our story is the following. When uh, migrants during the age of mass migrations arrived in the U.S., they had a longer exposure to the welfare states in their country of origin. And as a repeated contact, people from the U.S. learn from the migrants. And as a result, they 
you know, inherit from them, you know, over the centuries, their preferences uh, for uh, redistributions. So this is called contact hypothesis in sociologists. So there can be an in initial backlash towards migrants, but then over time you can change your mind and, you know, you can inherit their uh, attitudes. And there are a few couple of interesting points which we you know, didn't expect when we started the study, which are the following. So one of my co-authors found Marco Tabellini. So I wrote the seed of ideology with uh, Marco Tabellini from Harvard Business School. He looked at uh, preferences for redistribution in the U.S. when migrants arrived during the age of mass migrations. And he did find that Americans didn't like to redistribute at the time. And so this would be what the contemporaneous effect of migrants. But then we did find that over time, the effect was completely the opposite. And so we think, again, that is a story of cultural transmissions. Once people from the U.S. you know, learn about the preferences for the welfare states of the migrants, they inherit them. And consistently with our hypothesis, we did find that people from the U.S. are more inclined to redistribute in those countries in which intermarriage with migrants was more common and in those counties in which migrants were more integrated uh, geographically or residentially with people from the U.S. There are a lot of counties in the United States. It must be uh, difficult to assemble uh, enough information uh, to draw the kind of conclusions that you're able to draw. Yes, it took at least a couple of years because we had to construct the presence of immigrants from different countries who move you know, in different counties in the U.S. And so we used the full count uh, census data. And so we construct this measure at the county level for a measure of immigrants. And then we also had to measure the exposure to the welfare states. We used the number of years uh, in which migrants were exposed in their country of origin to national education policy. And again, we were interested in using uh, the variation. Just to give you an example, migrants who were coming from Denmark. Uh, in Denmark, national education policy was introduced in 1914. In Sweden, uh, was introduced in 1842. In Italy, was introduced in 1877. So, you know, different countries for different migrants arriving at different time they had a different exposure to their preferences for redistributions of the welfare state. So the people who were already here uh, during the age of immigration from 1850 to 1920 uh, were people who also were descended from uh, immigrants, but I take it they descended before the creation of the welfare state in Europe. Yes, so when they arrived, the, the welfare state was... Uh, barely existent at the time, and so they didn't have strong preferences for welfare state form. And we also check whether the presence of those immigrants has an effect on preferences for redistribution, and we do find that it didn't have an effect. How did you come up with this standard? Economists have been sending uh, preferences for redistributions for a long time, and the difficult part was uh, to find uh, data to measure preferences for redistributions. So now there are uh, surveys with a large number of observations so we can make uh, better predictions. And there are a variety of questions that can be used. One is, do you think uh, the government should increase welfare spending or do you think uh, the government should increase the minimum wage? 
Or do you think the government should support uh, redistribution from the rich to the poor? I mean, many economists validate this subjective measure for uh, redistributions with actual tax rate. So this is something that is standardly done. So you can historically locate and measure uh, the idea that there should be redistribution and that the welfare state is a good thing. What about the opposite feeling that the welfare state is a bad thing, that people, in fact, are responsible by their own effort to advance themselves and be successful, that it's not just a matter of luck? Where does that idea come from? So there is a wonderful book written on the topic by um, Alberto Resina and Ed Glazer, and they compare differences in preferences for redistributions between the US and Europe. And their idea is essentially the following, that these two countries, they have different beliefs on what drives success in life. European believes that luck matter for success in life, and Americans are more individualistic, so they think that uh, effort is what matters for success in life. So their idea is that these countries, they did start with different underlining beliefs of effort versus luck. And Europeans who believe in luck, they want more government interventions and then they develop a larger welfare state. Whether Americans, they believe more than effort and they don't want too much government intervention. Another interesting aspect of uh, preferences for redistributions is uh, the perceptions of uh, social mobility. And again, the U.S. is very different than Europe. So in the U.S., the perceptions of social mobility is uh, very high. So people think that if you work very hard, you can make it to the top. And as a result, people in the U.S., even if they're poor today, so poor people, they should vote for redistributions, right? But even poor people in the U.S., since they believe that one day they will be the rich of tomorrow, they do not like to redistribute. And this is very different than, say, for example, France, in which the perceptions of social mobility is lower and then people want more redistributions from the government. There's a lot of reporting recently uh, to the effect that there is not as much social mobility in the United States as people would like to think there is, uh, and that we do, in fact, uh, have something resembling the caste system uh, to a much greater extent than we might like to believe, but you're talking about uh, inclinations uh, rather than realities. Yes, I'm talking about the inclinations rather than uh, reality. And often, uh, again, there is a study by Alberto Lezina and Stefani Stancheva, the relationship between inclinations and reality is not very high. So people in the U.S. believe that there is much more social mobility than actual there is. So is this, to some extent, a part of the argument uh, that has been raging for so long over nature versus nurture, uh, that uh, what you're bred to think, according to generations past, is what determines your thinking to a much greater extent than nurture and the way you grow up? I have a broader view uh, in that sense. I do believe that whatever we inherit from the past, we can think about cultural norms like rule of thumbs. So we inherit this norm from our parents and we think that these norms are optimal. But then the environment around us can change. And so 
we can change our beliefs. So, you know, in, in the paper for uh, growing up in a recession, we do find that, you know, you may be more individualistic, but, you know, if you experience a strong recessions, then you may become more pro-government, more pro-redistribution just because you believe that the government should intervene. So, you know, from my research, uh, I find that there is, a, you know, quite substantive amount of persistence in cultural norms, but then this norm can be changed. They're definitely not uh, hardwired uh, in our DNA. And yet, I take it, they do go back pretty far, even to prehistoric times. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I wrote a, a very provocative paper a few years ago. It's called uh, Women and the Plow. What we study is what uh, determine uh, gender biases in uh, societies. If you look at, at data across the world, there are huge differences in uh, female labor force participations. Uh, you know, in some countries, women work a lot, like the Scandinavian countries. And in some countries like Pakistan, female labor force participation is uh, extremely low. And there are surveys uh, that ask, what do you think is the role of women in society? And the response to these surveys tend to mimic differences in female labor force participations. For example, a standard question to measure gender bias is, um, do you think the right place for a woman is uh, to work uh, in the labor market or to stay at home and take care of the children? And in those countries in women work more, then they also tend to respond that women should work uh, in the market. And then in those countries in which female labor force participation is low, both men and women tend to respond that the right place of a woman uh, is uh, staying at home. And a similar question asks, uh, when jobs are scarce, men should have more right to a job than women, and we find a similar gender biases. So the questions that we try to answer in that paper is where these gender biases come from. And there is a very interesting book by Esther Bozerup, uh, women's role in economic development, and she claims that differences in gender role can be traced back to pre-industrial societies. So she distinguished uh, pre-industrial societies in two groups based on the type of agricultural technologies that they were using. In some societies, the plow was used and men have a physical advantage in using the plow, in some other societies, uh, shifting agriculture was common. And then in shifting agriculture, women can participate in agriculture because it doesn't require physical strength. You use instruments uh, like the digging stick and it's very compatible with childcare. And her idea is that if you leave, if your ancestor practiced plow agriculture, then uh, these societies develop the beliefs that the right place of a woman is, was to stay at home. And then if your ancestors were practicing shifting agriculture, uh, women were participating more in agriculture and then the beliefs that men and women are more equal was developed. And we collect data on the type of uh, agriculture that ancestors were used and then we link it to female labor force participations to ethnicities all over the world. So the data collections took more than three years, three to four years. And we did find uh, striking results. So we did find that there is a very strong correlation between female labor force participation today and the type of agricultural technologies that societies used in the distant past. The very distant past. A lot must depend on geography. Yes. 
a lot depend on geography and so there was the you know suitability to certain type of crop was more conducive to the introductions of the plow so geography in this type of studies had a, a very strong impact but those norms you're saying that were established in uh, pre-industrial times have managed to be transmitted generation to generation to generation to the present Yes, they managed to be transmitted from generations to generations to generations. So first of all, we don't claim that what's determined uh, gender differences today is just the use of the plow uh, in the distant past. But we do find that there is a strong amount of persistence, but there is also a lot of heterogeneity in the type of persistence. So in those places where the environment is very stable, there was less propensity to change this norm. So these norms were optimal in the past and they tend to be optimal today. And then in those places where the environment changed quite a bit, then the norms tend to disappear much more quickly. And again, the main idea to find a common thread for all my research is that the initial conditions that society had, mostly geographical conditions, were very important to determine our initial norms, but then time passes and we face different shocks uh, that could be environmental shocks or economic shocks, then our norms can change. So if the uh, norms being transmitted depends to a certain extent on a stable environment, what do you suppose are going to be the consequences of climate change? Um Climate change should make people less inclined to respect their uh, traditions. So this is what we find in one of our paper with uh, Nathan Nunn. So we look at climatic changes uh, from generations to generations, and we look at the propensity of society to respect traditions. And we do find that if the environment was very stable across generations, then norms tend to be transmitted much more. And when the environment was much less stable, then there was much more cultural change. We were not interested in a shock in a specific period. So historically, you had a climate shock, like the Little Ice Age of the warm medieval period. So we are looking more at the stability from one generation to the next. So if climate change will imply a lot of change in climate from one generation to the next, then yes, we will expect, again, if we can speculate, that norm will change much more quickly compared to the past. You said earlier on that we're not all that good at distinguishing between uh, our cultural norms that we've inherited uh, and reality. And yet at the same time, given what happens when this environment is unstable, we've also turned out to be pretty adaptable. Yeah, but uh, adaptability is different than perception, I would say. And we can change our perceptions. So I think if once you provide the correct information to people, they can change uh, their perceptions. And then if beliefs depends on perceptions, they in principle can change their beliefs. Well, pleasure talking to you again. Uh, Professor Paola Giuliano is a teacher of economics at UCLA Anderson. She does research on culture and political economy as well. Thanks again. Oh, it was great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you.